As we've been talking the last few weeks, we reemphasize again how much weight a name carries. Okay, we've talked about that for the last two weeks, and, and we know that your name actually carries weight, and the weight that it carries is based off the life that you live. So whether it's good, bad, ugly, whatever, when your name is spoken, there's thoughts that come to people's mind. When you hear someone's name, thoughts come to your mind, but it's all based off the fact of how you live and that your testimony is built by the life that you live, and therefore, it's, whether you like it or not, it's attached to your name. And so we've been looking at the names of Jesus for the last few weeks so that we can better understand or better get an idea of what Emmanuel means. What does it mean when God comes to be with us? What do we have access to? What is all of this news about Jesus coming God coming in the form of man to be with us. And, and so we've looked at these names of Jesus so that we can get a better idea of what we as children of God have access to. So what does God being with us truly mean? And as we unpacked last week, we talked about wonderful counselor. You just sung about it once again. And so this week, we're gonna look at a different name. And so I want you to go back to where we started last week in Isaiah chapter nine, and we're gonna look at a name, but then we're just gonna spend very little time in Isaiah 9, and then we're gonna flip um, to one of the gospels here in just a minute. But this is where we're gonna find the name that we're gonna talk about and discuss today. Isaiah chapter nine, verse six. It says, for a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us. The government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, or some of your Bibles probably say Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. And so as we've talked the last few weeks of what Emmanuel means, that it is God coming to be with us, God coming to be with his people. And so as Jesus came to live out all of the attributes of the Father, to come and live out all the attributes of God here on earth. He came to be God in the flesh. And the way that he was God in the flesh is he lived it out. He led by example. He didn't just talk about it, but he lived about it. But there's something else we need to mention today. Not only did Jesus come to display the attributes of God, but Jesus also came to talk about them. Jesus preached, Jesus taught, and in a lot of his messages, he continued to talk about the attributes of who our heavenly father is. And so as we look at this today, when we talk about Jesus preaching out the attributes of God, he often spoke of God as father. Too much, so much to the fact that 189 times you will hear the name Father in the four Gospels alone. 189 times you will hear the name Father mentioned. And what's interesting is if you read all throughout the New Testament, you see Jesus preaching about the Father in the Gospels, and then if you go towards the end of the, the New Testament, you hear the Apostle John still talking about it. And so in 1 John 3, 1, we hear that, that John is talking now, and he says, see how great a love the what? The Father 
has bestowed on us that we would be called the children of God. Such we are. And so this message of fatherhood, this terminology of this word father was very, very important in the ministry of Jesus. This message of God the Father was revealed some 800 years before Jesus arrived on earth. And then here we are some 2,000 years later still talking about the message of Father. Now I know that when we talk about the message of Father, that God is very, very passionate wanting us to know the role of the father, wanting to know, wanting us to know his role as father. So you best believe if God's passion is for us to understand fatherhood, if God is so passionate about us, knowing what it means to be a father, knowing what it means for him to be our father, if God is this passionate about it, you best believe it's the enemy's passion to warp it. If God wants us to understand the, the beauty of fatherhood, wants us to know what we have access to as him as our heavenly father, you best believe the enemy wants to work just as hard to make sure that our view of fatherhood is warped and tainted. Louis Giglio says this. Oh, hold on, let me say this first. In regards to, to fathers, in regards, in regards to this word fatherhood, you understand that the name that this generation has been given is the fatherless generation. They've been given the name fatherless generation and let me tell you, that's not by accident. Louis Giglio says this, the name fatherless generation has been given not by accident, but in the divine plan of hell. So the fact that our children and our children's children, and even maybe you today, wear this title of fatherless generation, you see the enemy at work. Because the enemy believes that if he can break up our relationships with our earthly fathers, then he can create a stumbling block in attempt to hinder us from coming to the heavenly father. Because just like we talked about a moment ago, when you hear a name, you attach characteristics to it, whether you want to or not, but those characteristics are given based off your experience with it with whatever that name may be. And look, there's no doubt in my mind in this room right now, in this moment, for many of you, you hear the word father and thoughts flood your mind. Some are really good, but on the flip side, there's some that are really bad. So as you hear this word father, the enemy wants to remind you today of all the bad experiences you have with your earthly father. 
in order to create a stumbling block for you coming to the heavenly father. And so I want you to know that I have specifically prayed for you today. We prayed for you out in the lobby just a moment ago that God would protect your thoughts and your mind. And what we're gonna see in scripture today, I pray to God that it comes against every emotion that you have attached to the word father. And that when we talk about the everlasting father, that everything changes, that everything's shifting you see, the reason Jesus speaks about the Father so much is for that very reason. He wants you to understand what the everlasting Father is all about. You see, what Jesus is teaching us is he's teaching us not to project the imperfections of our earthly Father onto the perfect heavenly Father. Jesus teaches on this because he doesn't want us to attach the imperfections of our earthly father to the perfect heavenly father. Louis Giglio also says this, God is not a reflection of your earthly father. He is the perfection of your earthly father. God is not a reflection of our earthly father. He is the perfection of our earthly father. You know, in, in Jesus' teaching style, I would have loved to sit under it, obviously, but he used a lot of stories. And those stories are called parables. Many of you may know that that a parable is something Jesus would use. It was a story that he would use to illustrate a moral or a spiritual lesson. It wasn't necessarily an, act, an actual event that took place. It was something that he would use to help get a point across. And so today, we're gonna look at a parable that Jesus taught in the Gospel of Luke. So I want you to turn to Luke chapter 15 today. Luke chapter 15, and as I started studying about this everlasting father and started praying where God was gonna lead us today, and I'm just gonna be real transparent with you, God settled my heart on this parable, and it's the parable of the prodigal son, and in my mind, I'm thinking, oh man, everybody knows that when like, you know, give me something that's like nobody knows about, you know, that there's always this, you wanna discover this new, and he said, hey, big dummy. He didn't really say, hey, big dummy, but he needs to a lot of times. There's nothing new under the sun. Right? If Jesus was teaching on it then, we still should be teaching on it today. So as we talk about the prodigal son today, we're not gonna necessarily look a lot at the son. We're gonna look at the father. And we're gonna look at the father's response to the son. And so for the sake of time, we're not gonna dig into the, to Luke chapter 15 where we talk a lot about the son, but I'm gonna give you a 30,000 foot view, if you're not familiar with it already, of what the son is responsible for, what the son is already doing. Now, speaking of names, when somebody's given the name the prodigal son, I think we probably ought to pay attention to what does prodigal mean? Prodigal is this. It's an archaic term that describes an extravagantly self-indulgent or a recklessly wasteful person. I hope you don't have prodigal attached to your name. 
but it describes an extravagantly self-indulgent or recklessly wasteful person. And so scholars believe that what this story is implying is that the son, the prodigal son, was tired of living in submission to the father. He was tired of living under his father's rules. And so this son thought, I've got my own plans. I know how life could be better. I know how life could be more enjoyable. And I'm not going to experience that under the rule of my father. So I'm going to go ahead and ask for all of my inheritance. And I'm going to get out of Dodge. I'm going to go do my own thing. And so I'm going to make a request of the father that I can go ahead and get my inheritance early. Now, keep in mind, the religious people that are hearing this, this message that Jesus is teaching When they hear this, they're appalled at this request. They were blown away at what the son was requesting because it revealed such disrespect and lack of love that the son would have had for his father. Even to the point of a lot of scholars believe that this was a a passive way of the son saying he wished the father was dead because he valued what the father had to give him more than he did the father himself. And so we see that the son makes this request. The religious people are appalled at this request. And in most cases, culture would have said in that moment, the father would have cut the son off, would exile him from the family. But what we see already is what the father does. The father grants the son his request, gives him an inheritance, and the son says, I'm out. And the Bible says that he goes to a foreign land. The importance of understanding what foreign land means, it meant he went to the place of sin. He went to live with the Gentiles. He went to live with those who were far from God to indulge in all of the things that they were indulging in. And so he left because he thought, I've got a better way. But very quickly, you know, the Bible says that he squandered all that he had. That word squandered, that's an odd word, isn't it? But it says that that means to scatter and waste all of it. So everything that the father had given him, just like that, it was gone. And then to add insult to injury, after all of his resources and inheritance is gone, now all of a sudden famine hits the land. So now he has no money and nobody has any food. So it's all gone. But because, just like many of us, the son was very prideful. And so he refused to go back and he thought, you know what, I can fix this. And the Bible says that he hired himself out. He hired himself out. Because if I hire myself out, I can get myself back on my feet and I can fix the mess that I've created. That word hired, though, I want you to make sure you understand. It's a little different than the way we use it. Hired was a term that was attached to a beggar. And the word hired literally means to glue oneself to. And so what the son had done is he had found someone that he could receive resources from, and he had literally attached himself to them, thinking, okay, they can give me what I need. I'm in bad shape. This man of the world can can give me what I need, and so I'm gonna attach myself to him. And through a lot of study, they believe that 
that the one he had glued himself to, for lack of better words, the one that he had hired himself out to, literally got sick and tired of listening to him. So he said, please, just go feed the pigs. Just go feed the pigs. And I don't know about you, but I have this visual in my mind. I used to have goats, and I used to know what it felt like to feed goats. I walked down there with my little bucket, with my pellet in there, and I shake it, and they would all come running. So I had kind of this little story in my mind of this is what it looked like for him to feed the pigs. He just went down there, he dumped the slop over the top, and then he just laughed and watched them eat all this mess. But when you look at literally what he's talking about, he didn't just go and feed the pigs. When you look at further research, you realize he was literally fighting with the pigs to eat what they were eating. He was literally wallowing in the mud because he now desired, he was in such bad shape, he was wrestling in the mud, he was fighting with the pigs to get what they were eating. So it's not him walking down with a pail of food and dumping it over the gate. He's in desperation mode of fighting with pigs because he is at rock bottom and he is in bad, bad shape. So before we go any further, there's one thing that I want you to tuck back in your mind. Before we look at the Father today, do you see what the Father has already done? The Father never held the Son hostage and never said, hey, I know what you wanna do, but I'm gonna keep you here. You can't go. He gave the son the freedom to do what the son wanted to do. He let him choose what he wanted to do. And he, the choice to be made is I'm gonna stay here with my father or I'm gonna leave my father. It's that simple. I'm either gonna walk with my father or I'm gonna walk away from my father. That's the choice that had been given. And so what I want you to understand today is that God will give us all the liberty to pursue what we wanna pursue. God's never gonna hold you hostage. He's never gonna demand that you can't do something. Yes, in scripture, he tells us as a follower of Christ what we need to not do and what we need to do. But at the end of the day, God's never gonna hold you hostage. He's gonna give you the choice to choose which direction you wanna go. But as I was thinking about this, I was reminded of a quote that, that Greg Worley shared with me a couple of weeks ago, and it was given to him by another pastor. And I want you to listen to this. I'm gonna say it a few times because it's pretty weighty. Sometimes God will let you get what you want. So when you get what you want, you don't want what you got. Sometimes God will let you get what you want. So when you get what you want, you don't want what you got. You see, that's the story of what's happened here. The father's letting the son go do what he wants to do. And when the son got what he thought he wanted, he realized, I don't like what I got because I got a mess. But God allowed all that to happen in hopes that the son would respond the way that the son finally responded. So let's look at how the son finally responds to his mistakes. Luke chapter 15, verse 18. I'll get up, go to my father and say to him, 
Now understand, this is not literally happening right now in this moment. He's kind of telling us what he's going to do. He hasn't yet done it, but he says, I'm going to get up. I'm gonna go to my father and I'm gonna say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired workers. And there's that word hired again. We could spend some time there, but boy, we don't have time for that. So the son has hit rock bottom. And what's interesting is I bring attention to the fact that he's not, le- he's not yet left. He's not yet having a conversation with his father, but it's almost as he's rehearsing what he's gonna say. He says, okay, I, I've got a mess. I, I need to get up. I've got to get out of here. And when I get out of here, I'm gonna, here's what I'm going to say. And so a lot of scholars believe that essentially what the son is doing is almost as if he's rehearsing what he's going to say to his father. How many of you have always been ready for an awkward conversation that you're not excited about at all and you have in your mind, you play it out over and over and over again and you continually rehearse what you're going to say? You do. You rehearse it. Why do you rehearse it? Because you're so uncertain of the response of the person that you're gonna be talking to. You're nervous about the interaction. You're hesitant about the interaction because you don't yet know how they're going to respond. So in your mind, you're rehearsing it because you want it to be flawless. You want it to go smoothly. And so we see that the, that the son is rehearsing this because the reason that he's uncertain is because the way the culture expected the father to respond His culture would tell us that the father would scold him. Culture tells us that the father would humiliate him. Or maybe even culture teaches that the father, as we said earlier, could have just completely separated the son from the family altogether. And so the father could essentially be absent in the son's life. And as I say some of those characteristics of the response from the father, maybe in your mind today, you can say, Brian, that's my experience with my father. I was always fearful of my father because my father, he was so hard. He scolded me. My father often humiliated me. Or maybe your story is my father's absent. Your father's nowhere to be found. And so what I I pray today, what I have asked the Lord to do is to help you see the difference with the experience of an earthly father versus the reality of our everlasting father. Because the two don't compare. There's no comparison in the two. Keep reading with me in verse 20. So he got up and he went to his father. But while the son was still a long way off, some of us could even shout right here. While the son was still a long way off, the father saw him and was filled with compassion 
And he ran and he threw his arms around his neck and he kissed him. We could literally spend a month in this one verse because there's so much lesson that Jesus is wanting us to understand in this response of the Father. So we're just gonna point out a few, but what we first see is that the Father was eager and desired his son's return. The story implies that the son was a long way off and the father saw him. So what this leads us to believe is that you best believe the father was watching, the father was waiting. Some even say that he was suffering silently in hopes of the return of his son. He desired, he had a longing for the return of his son. But as we talked about a minute ago, I love this because as we talked about him rehearsing it because he was uncertain, because he was worried about how father was gonna respond, do you realize before the son had an opportunity to say a word, he already saw how the father was gonna respond? Because the Bible says he ran to him. He came to him. And does it say that when he saw him that he was angry with him? Does it say that he saw him and he thought, okay, how can I discipline him when he saw him? How can I fix him? No, it said when he saw him, he had compassion. And I know compassion is a word that we're all familiar with, but I love when we are reminded of the definition of what it literally means. The word compassion means to imply pity coupled with the urgent desire to aid and spare. You see, it's one thing for the father to see the son coming and his heart go out to him. It's one thing for him to see his son coming and for him to feel sorry for him. But the Bible says that he saw him, had pity on him, and that couples with the action. That couples with the action and a desire to help him and a desire to spare him. So the beauty of that picture is the son got his answer as to how his father was gonna respond before he ever said a word. Remember, he's rehearsed it. He's practiced what he's gonna say to his father. But he never had to say a word before he knew how the father would respond. And so then the next thing we see, the father ran to the son. Now, I know we could spend a whole month talking about the fact that the father saw him. We could spend four months talking about what it means that the father ran to the son. And so what you're gonna see just by these examples alone is that culture has created a standard for the earthly fathers. But don't you love it that our heavenly father always trumps culture? And so all we're gonna do right here is we're gonna look at the fact the father ran and we're gonna compare and contrast what culture would teach versus what the everlasting father is living out what the everlasting father is displaying. And you're gonna quickly recognize 
there's a big difference in the two. Because of all these events that have happened, culture would have accepted, culture had already taught this young man that the father would have let the young boy enter on into the city. Keep in mind, everybody in that community would have known what the son was guilty of. Everybody would have talked about it. So the father would have let him make his way into the city, but he would have locked him outside the gate of his home. And so while the son would have sat at the gate of his home of his father, the crowd would have known exactly why he was there. The crowd would have built because they would have started talking in that community. Hey, the, the son came home. But evidently the father's mad at him because he's sitting outside the gate of his home. And now all of a sudden the son is completely covered in shame. He's embarrassed about what he's done. So that's what culture would have accepted. That's what culture would have said is okay. But the everlasting father, the importance of him running to the son is because the lesson that's being taught here is he met him before he ever came into the village in order to shield him from any shame that waited him inside. He met him outside. He didn't even give him the opportunity to make his way to the city because he didn't want the son to experience the shame that he rightfully deserved. So the father met him outside the village to protect him from the shame that was rightfully his. So the culture would have let him enter. The father met him outside. The next thing to look at from a culture's perspective is a father of, of this status, a father of this caliber, it was unheard of them to run in public. You say, well, that's kind of weird. Some of you are going, I wish it was still unheard of me to father to run in public because every time I do it, I pull a hammy or something. But the reason that it was unheard of of a father of this statute to, to run in public is because, remember, he wasn't wearing, never mind, I'm gonna keep my mouth shut. He wasn't wearing shorts, short shorts, that all these guys are wearing. My son is one of them. Anyway, I can't say that in the 1045, but he wasn't wearing gym shorts. He wasn't wearing warm-up pants. He wasn't wearing exercise clothes. He would have been wearing a robe. And so what he would have had to have done in order to run after the son is he would have literally had to pull his robe up around his waist to get it off of his legs, ultimately exposing his legs. Now, why that is important is because it was disgraceful for a man to show his legs. It was shameful for him to expose his legs. That's why he wore the robe was to keep them covered. And so the picture that we see here is that just like the everlasting father, he didn't care what culture said. He was willing to become the object of shame 
in order so his son would not be shamed. He ultimately says, I don't want you to focus on what my son has done. I want you to look at me. I'm gonna expose my legs. I'm gonna shame myself. And I want you to see what I'm about so that it takes the son and puts him in a different light. I'm gonna absorb all of the shame that is rightfully my son's and I want all of the attention of my shame to be focused on me. Do you see the parallel of the cross? Do you see the picture of Jesus by something as simple as pulling a robe up and exposing the skin of his legs? Do you realize that's exactly what Jesus modeled on the cross? All of the shame and guilt was meant for us. All of our sin exposed. But Jesus, the perfect lamb of God, willingly not forced to, willingly hung on a cross in public, completely naked or naked, depending on where you're from. I think he was naked. Yes. But the picture you see is he was willing to absorb all of your shame, all of my shame, and say, I want all the attention to be on me. Even though I'm flawless, I will be flaw. Even though I am sinless, I will become sin. So that the shame that is meant for you is all pointed to me. And the picture we see from the everlasting father is that he's willing to become the object of shame to absorb ours. And then the last example that we can learn from this is culture would have, would have given the father the right to, as the son entered the city, he would have given him a list of to-dos. Here's some things you can do. And if you accomplish these, then we'll consider reconciling the relationship. If you'll accomplish this to-do list, then there's a chance I may take you back in. But instead of the father giving him a list of things to do, the father gave him a hug and a kiss. That's the picture of grace. Now keep in mind, all of this has happened and the son still hasn't got to say what he wanted to say. Look at verse 21. Keep in mind, this is in the middle of an embrace, in the middle of a, of a kiss from his father. Verse 21, the son finally says, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and in your sight I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And I don't know if you remember this, but in verse 20, or verse 18 and 19, he went on to say, and gave another explanation. He had a whole bunch of things to say. He didn't even get to finish what he rehearsed. He didn't even get to get it all out. But in the midst of that embrace, it's almost as if the father said, son, just be quiet. Just keep your mouth shut. We're gonna give you a party because I'm just glad you're home. I'm just glad you're home. So son, just be quiet. 
Because you know, a lot of times when we talk, we just mess things up. Some of you today, you just need to crawl in the arms of God and just keep your mouth shut. Just keep your mouth shut. But he says, I wanna throw you a party and I'm gonna give you the best robe. I'm gonna give you a signet ring and I'm gonna give you a sandals. I don't want you just to fly over that because there's meaning behind everything that the father gave the son. The Bible specifically said he gave him his best robe. This would have been the father's. This would have been what the father took off and wrapped around his son. And so when we come to the Lord Jesus Christ with all of our failures, let this be the picture of grace. That he doesn't wrap you in your good works. He wraps you in his righteousness, in his holiness. And he clothes us in what he has done, not in what we've done. And then he says he puts a ring on his finger. Now to you and I, that may just seem weird, but it was very heavy with what was meant here because it would have been a signet ring. It would have had a, an emblem molded into it that would have represented the family. And when there was a document given, it would have had a piece of wax placed on it, a piece of hot wax, and they would have taken that ring and they would have put their imprint into that wax ring, declaring ownership to that document. And so what the father is saying, he's saying, son, here's my ring. You have access to everything that's mine. Everything that's mine is yours. Everything that is mine is yours. And then the fact that he just tops it off by putting sandals on his feet, what this represented was complete restoration was complete reconciliation with the Father. And as I was figuring out how to sort of close this out, y'all all know by now I'm a pretty logical guy. In this story, we see the events played out that the son was wrestling with the pigs and realized he was at rock bottom. And in that moment, he said, I'm going back to the Father. Keep in mind, the son just stopped fighting with the pigs. It doesn't say that he took a shower. It doesn't say that he cleaned up. It doesn't say that he smelled good. It doesn't say that he fixed all of his mess that he had created. But what this picture lets us know is that, yes, the son has just stopped fighting with the pigs but the father didn't make him clean up anything, but he offered him everything. He didn't make him clean up a thing, but he offered him everything. And there's somebody here today that you need to hear that story. You don't have to clean up everything. You don't have to clean up anything. But Jesus is standing waiting on you to come home so that he can give you everything. So maybe you're here today and you're 
view of a father is warped because of experiences here on earth. And this is what has caused hesitation in you coming to this one we call the heavenly father or the everlasting father or the eternal father. But what I hope you hear in the teachings of Jesus today is come just as you are. For the believer and the unbeliever alike, Jesus' posture is all the same. He's standing arms wide open, waiting on your return, waiting on you to come home. But the question is, is will you come home? He's never gonna hold you hostage. And look, I'm not one to do this very often, but, but church, you don't have to be a rocket science to figure out our time here is coming to a close. Either you've came to the Father or you have not. It's that simple. And so that's a question that I want you to ask in your heart of hearts today. Have you come home or have you not? Maybe as an unbeliever today, you've allowed this view of your earthly father, whether it be his absence, whether it be his humiliation, whether it be his scolding, that has warped your view of a father. And you're saying, if, if that's what this father looks like, I want nothing to do with him. I pray today that the word of God transformed that view that will keep you from projecting the failures of your earthly father onto the perfect heavenly father. And so today, if you're apart from God, I want you to envision today that he's standing there waiting, watching, wanting you to come home. But maybe as a child of God today, you've wandered. You can say, Brian, I know I've got a relationship with him. I've came home, but I've, I've left him. Well, you may think you left him, but he ain't going nowhere. Just turn around. 